For the last few weeks, we've talked about the Christian story. How seeing it clearly will help you interact with, how, with what the world throws at you. If you missed a week, they are all up on iTunes now. So you can click it, review. If you miss it, again, you can access it on really any computer, any phone. You should be able to get it. Um, you can get them on the website too if you're using an Android or anything like that. Um, the Christian story is not just about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. It is more encompassing. Um, it is the way we interact with the world. If we see God's story clearly, then we can see, see our story clearly. It is seeing 2020, hence the name of the series. Um, along the way, we've learned a couple key components. First key component was that truth exists and you can know it. Truth exists and you can know it. The second one is this, is that some people will be wrong. And they're wrong not because we hate them, but because it's simple math. If you look at what people believe, no matter what end of the spectrum you're on, the majority of the world is probably wrong. Third, and I think most importantly, is the main character in the story is God. It's not you. You are not the main character in the story. And the fourth was the one we covered last week, and it's this idea of covenant. Covenant is one of the main themes in the story. Covenant is to our story as the Force is to Star Wars. Without it, you actually don't have the story. We are covenant creatures by nature. That's what we spent last week during our transformation groups talking about. And knowing these things, we can now best interact with the Word of God. If you know those four things, those are the four presuppositions you can bring to reading your Bible to help you best understand it. Those are the four things that you need to know. Um, we know the, these truths are found in Scripture. Um, and this is the cool part. If there's a part of the Bible that you don't understand, there will be enough of the Bible that you do understand that you can interpret the parts that you don't understand with what you do understand. It's the concept called that Scripture interprets Scripture. And it's your first fill in the blank. Scripture interprets Scripture. That's one way that we see 2020 with these presuppositions. Scripture interprets Scripture. So now we're going to move to a story in Scripture that should give you clarity to the universal story that we've been talking about for the last month. Now, there are tons of stories in Scripture that deal with the universal story. I would actually argue that every story in Scripture deals with the universal story. But this one in particular, I think, deals with it most plainly. Any sixth grader reading the book of Hosea can understand the plain metaphor that is set before them. Now, if you've never read Hosea before, it's 14 chapters. And the first four chapters are the actual story. And that's what we're going to dive into this next month. We're going to dive into the story of Hosea. And past that, chapters 5 through 14 are explaining what chapters 1 through 4 are about. So 1 through 4 are the story. And 5 through 14 are kind of what happened in the midst of what was happening in the story. So if you really want to break down, what does this metaphor mean? He tells you. So I think it would be a really good idea if you don't have something that you're currently reading in Scripture, 
Go through the book of Hosea in your quiet time over the course of the next month. It really is a quick read. Um, I'm probably a faster reader, so I can get through this book in 30 minutes to 45 minutes. For a slower reader, maybe an hour, hour and a half. But if you're reading five to ten minutes a day, you should be able to get through the book of Hosea at least twice this month. So that would be my challenge to you, is to go through the book of Hosea two times and see what you pick out differently in it. Okay? So we're going to begin, we're going to be in the Word a lot today. We're going to be in the book of Hosea. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. It's in the Old Testament. Prophet. Give you the number. Hosea in your Pew Bibles is on page 751. 751. If you're trying to find it, it's after the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, Lamentations. It's um, about halfway through or just after halfway through the Bible. So while we find that, let me pray. Before we dive in and let the word speak to us tonight. Bow your heads with me. Father God, you've given us your word so that we can best see clearly the world that you have put us in. Lord, I ask that you would do that here tonight. That we would begin to see how the universal story that we find in scripture reflects the life that we currently live. That this isn't just some ancient text that we study for historical knowledge, but this is an ancient text that you have given us to speak to us where we are today. Lord, help us see clearly, help us see 2020, so that we can love people well and live life well. In your son's name, amen. Again, we're in Hosea chapter 1. It's not too long. 11 verses. This is what it says. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Berah, in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom, By forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer. Talk about an awful introduction to a character in scripture, right? The daughter of Dibliam. And she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel, bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, for I will have no mercy. No more. I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord, their God. I will not save them by the bow or by the sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, 
for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. That thus reads the, that thus ends the reading. So Moody Bible Institute offers a great first question to this story. And this is the question. If you found out that you were the victim of adultery, could you forgive your spouse? Now, none of you are married yet, so probably have never considered that question. Makes sense. But consider it. If you found out that you were a victim of adultery, could you forgive your spouse? Imagine that the unfaithfulness wasn't just a one-night stand, but it was a long-term affair. Could you forgive your spouse? Imagine further that your spouse wasn't repentant. It was rather open with what he or she was doing. Would you still love your spouse? Would you want him or her back? Now remember, from what we've learned these past few weeks, this is not a story where you are the main character. You are not Hosea. God is the main character in this book. And I asked the, que- and I asked the question, if you found out that you were a victim of adul- adultery, could you forgive your spouse? Not to highlight your spirituality. Not to highlight your holiness. Because you're not Hosea in this situation. I asked this question, rather, it's your next one on the blank, to highlight the incredible love of God. To highlight the incredible love of God. When we, his people, are unfaithful, spurning the love of our true husband Jesus, he continues to love us. He pursues us, wooing us back and disciplining us. That's the picture we see in the lives of Hosea and his wife Gomer in this book. You see, Israel is much worse off than they look at this point in history. And let me tell you a little bit about where they are at this point in history. I just read an article recently about a discovery in the Mediterranean Sea where they found two large bronze statues in the ocean. They were beautifully well-preserved. You could dive down, you could see them. They were gorgeous on the outside. But when they went to excavate them, they found that dirt had caked its way somehow, whether it's a small hole or a big hole, inside the statues. And the inside of the statues were rusted and full of literally hundreds of pounds of clay 
to where it was destroyed on the inside. And that is much like where we see Israel during this period. They look beautiful on the outside. Okay? Um, They look gorgeous. The northern kingdom of Israel in the days of the prophet Hosea was very much like this. Outwardly, they were solid. The nation was enjoying a time of material prosperity under Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. Verse 1. When Hosea began his prophetic ministry in the middle of the 8th century. Likewise... The military situation at this point was stable. Assyria had stopped their western expansion. It was kind of sitting over there, chilling out for a while. But beneath the surface of the nation's core, there was corrosion. God lowered his camera into the holiness, into the soul of Israel, and exposed the spiritual adultery of the people. Like those statues in the ocean, on the inside... They were rusted and caked over with mud. They had departed him and broken his covenant. There's that word again. Judgment was due. Yet God would also remember his covenant promises to Abraham and David, restoring his people to their glorious future age. Hosea was to deliver this message in a very weird way. God ordered him to marry Gomer, a woman who would prove unfaithful. A woman who would prove unfaithful. And this would be the object lesson of God's anger with Israel, yet also a lesson of his promise to restore his people. It's dealing with the covenant justice of God and the covenant love. Notice how Hosea labels his children. Hosea's firstborn is named Jezreel. He was a reminder, going to be a reminder of judgment. Many years early, God's judgment was incurred by Jehu's killing Ahaziah, a descendant of David, at a town called Jezreel. In attacking the house of David, Jehu went too far. And the judgment of God was then fulfilled when Jehu's descendant, Zechariah, was assassinated. That's in 2 Kings 15. Imagine, imagine naming a kid... Hiroshima. Or after like a very destructive hurricane right after it happens. Like that is that is not going to win that kid a lot of friends on the schoolyard, right? They're not going to pick Jezreel to be first in dodgeball unless they too want to get destroyed. Right? And think about it, the naming gets even worse from there on out. At least that's kind of a metaphor. Second kid, no mercy. Now, we used to have a mercy here at Yak. She still goes to our church, right? She's a college student. We all like mercy. And we think little of her name. Right? It's sweet. Like mercy. But no mercy? That's like the Waldo to the Mario, right? The opposite. Wario. I know. <laughs> I fit in a Wario reference this year. I can check that off my box. No, Walt. Wal- no, yeah, I did. Wow. <laughs> Wario to the Mario. <laughs> Tells you where my mind was when I was uh, <laughs> building this up. I got a Waldo reference in too this year. It is the Wario to the Mario. The opposite of what you would call somebody. 
Third kid. Not my people. No offense, but the names are getting a lot more straightforward, right? No mother, when asked, why did you name your kid this? Responds with, I like the sound of it. It's a family name. I'm just going to say that with not my people. But think, again, if God's the main character, think about the covenantal relationship he has with his people. Israel has broken covenant. They might have looked holy on the outside, but they were hollow within. This is what the people of God have become. They have committed atrocities like Jezreel. They do not deserve mercy. They deserve judgment. They have chosen not to act as God's people. And if the story ended there, God would be perfectly just. If Hosea ended in chapter 1, God is good and God is just. But God had made a covenant with his people. And it would not be based on how his people acted, but would be based on his action. It would be morally right. And we get to one of my favorite compound words in English in verse 10. So if you want to go back to verse 10, this is one that would be a good memorization one. Yet. Great word, right? I like yet. The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23. Romans 3.23 and 24. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. A lot of people ask, what is the overall story and overall narrative of scripture? Hosea is giving it to us. We are a covenant people who have broken covenant. God gives us judgment because he is just and yet offers us grace, not because of the action we have taken, but because of his love for us. We see that in Hosea. We see, saw that last week in Genesis 3. It's all the same story played out. This is the covenant story we see in the Christian life. I thought of this analogy this week. We are like the farmer who grows poison. And at the end of the season, we watch the storm come rumbling in. We're covered head to toe in the manure of the fields we have sown. The plants are just beginning to sprout, and, and the guilt we feel in our gut is ready to harvest. We know that God of the storm should strike us down with a lightning bolt. And as the thunder rumbles in the distance, we know it would be fair. Our hearts are sent against ourselves and our neighbor. And as we wait on the hill of the poison fields, shovel in hand, waiting for righteous judgment, yet, when the storm rolls out, 
and the rains come. We aren't struck, but we're washed. And when we leave the field, now washed by the storm, the lightning strikes the field of poison behind us, burns it to the ground, and when that happens, it fertilizes the soil. That is the covenant story that is given to us. Where we once planned a harvest of misery, God brings newness of life by removing what we intended and replacing it with a soil that can enrich our lives and the lives of those around us. And that is what we will see in the remainder of Hosea.